1: is Crimes of the Centuries. If you listened to last episode about the murders in Villisca, you'll know that authors Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James spent years sifting through old newspaper accounts of grisly axe murders. Several of the murders that they examined, but which they do not believe was the work of the Villisca killer, are worthy of their own episodes. So much so that I probably could do half a season just looking at various familicides in the early 1900s. But there was one case in particular that caught my attention and seemed worthy of an offshoot episode. A case so unknown that there was no documentary or newsreel to help tell the story. And yet, it's a story with big political ramifications, plus the types of twists and turns usually reserved for the movies. And that is the story of a woman and her son brutally slain in a small Oregon town called Scapoose about 30 miles north of Portland, near the Washington border. At least today, Skapoose is a small Oregon town. Back then, it was an unincorporated village with fewer than 200 residents.
2: So there was a small family, Mr. and Mrs. Frank Wehrman, who lived in a tiny little mountain town in Oregon called Skapoose.
1: This is McCarthy James, from whom you heard last episode. She helped write the book, The Man from the Train, which centered on the serial killer that she and her co-author dad, Bill James, believe committed the crime in Villisca, Iowa. The Jameses also highlighted this case in a tangential chapter. The year was 1911.
3: William Howard Taft was in the White House. America was a nation of 90 million. Life in this time was simpler. There was no television or radio, and coal cost less than $5 a ton. One out of four Americans owned a horse, but if you owned a car, you were one in 200.
1: On September 5th, 1911, a woman named Elizabeth Seerks passed by a lonely cabin in the woods that she knew was home to a young couple and their four-year-old son. Elizabeth had become friendly with the wife of the cabin, Daisy Wehrman, who was always accompanied by her four-year-old Harold. The husband of the cabin was Frank Wehrman, a baker who spent his work weeks a train ride away at his job with the New York Bakery of Portland. The Wehrmans were new to the area, having bounced around several states, most recently from Washington. The couple had married in Iowa, their birth state, on September 6, 1905. Frank would come home on the weekends and spend all of Saturday with his wife and son before shuttling off back to Portland. At least, that was usually the case. It just so happened that the week before the murders, he stayed home from work because he was sick. He returned by train Sunday afternoon. As Elizabeth passed by this Tuesday morning, something caught her eye. She noticed that the front door was padlocked, which was odd. She had never seen the door padlocked before. Curious, Elizabeth approached the cabin and peered through a window. She spotted the wife of the couple, the woman, Daisy Wehrman, lying on the bed with her child. She tried to rouse them by knocking the door, but they didn't rise. Elizabeth found this odd, but figured they must be deep in sleep. And since she had no way to get past the padlocked door anyway, she went back home. When she returned the next day and saw Daisy and Harold lying in the same positions as she'd seen the day prior, she alerted the sheriff. Sheriff A.E. Thompson wasn't stationed in Scapoose. He served all of Columbia County and called St. Helens his home base, but he just so happened to be in Scapoose on this Wednesday, so he rushed to the wearman's cabin and busted down the door. The scene that greeted him and his deputies was horrific. Daisy and Harold lay dead together on the bed. Daisy was half nude.
2: It was pretty apparent right away that it was a sexual assault. Her clothes were pushed up, she was exposed.
1: it appeared from the condition of Daisy and Harold's bodies that they had been dead for several days, which was one of the typical hallmarks of the cases featured in the book, The Man from the Train. The case had other overlaps with those cases as well. There were train tracks somewhere in the vicinity, the house where the murders occurred had been locked up by the killer when he left, and it was clear an axe was used. But once McCarthy James and her dad looked a little closer for their book, they decided it's highly unlikely that the Velisca madman committed this crime too. And that's because, first glance aside, Daisy and Harold hadn't been axed to death. They had been shot. The axe wounds were post-mortem. And while Daisy's skull was smashed in with the blunt side of the ax, Harold had been struck with a blade. It was rare that the man from the train used the blade. And when he did, there seemed to be a logical reason. Like one time when it appeared the man of the house had fought back, causing his killer to swing wildly rather than kill with a single controlled bash, as was his custom. The man from the train almost always used the blunt side And McCarthy James has a theory as to why.
2: The big thing is that a sharp axe might get stuck in there and it's harder to pull out. So then if you get it stuck in, that's you're being less efficient. You're not going to do it as quickly. Nobody's going to wake up and mess up your whole scheme, basically.
1: So if it wasn't the serial axe killer tormenting the nation, who killed Daisy and Harold?
0: LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Once Daisy and Harold Wehrman's bodies were examined, the cause of death became clear. Daisy had been shot three times at such close range... Each shot left powder burns on her body. Any one of the shots would have been fatal. Her son was also shot three times, again, at close range. Each of those three bullets went into the little boy's head. As the sheriff investigated the scene, he noticed an important clue. Near the bodies were some strewn pieces of mail, as well as a still-wrapped newspaper dated September 4th. That's two days before the bodies were found. The sheriff knew the neighbor had unwittingly seen the body September 5th, so the newspaper firmed up the date of death. It must have been Monday, September 4th. This was supported by the fact that Daisy was known to make three loaves of bread on Mondays, and in the cabin, there were three freshly made loaves of bread still in the pan. Now, the Weirman cabin wasn't in scapoose proper.
3: No, it was up in the hills above scapoose, very frontier, like, people got their water from a local stream and felt what they could with the tools that they had.
1: This is Duke Smith, a retired deputy sheriff from neighboring Montauk County.
3: According to the Oregonian, there's only 12 people living in the area at the time of the murders.
1: Now, back in the olden days, homes were so spread out that mail wasn't delivered to houses like it is now. Instead, it would be delivered to post offices. And when one person from a neighborhood stopped by to grab their parcels, they often picked up the rest of the mail for their neighbors and deposited it in a designated community mail spot closer to that part of town. Or, you know, they'd hand deliver it in a friendly neighbor kind of way. Sheriff Thompson checked with the post office and learned from a clerk that on Monday, September 4th, a local man named John Arthur Pender had picked up the Wehrman's mail. The sheriff and one of his deputies had already made note of Pender when they came into town. He seemed nosy about where they were headed and strangely certain they'd be there a while. So this new detail was interesting. Pender was a 32-year-old man who lived nearby in a tent. Now, if you're wondering why he lived in a tent, so am I. His wife lived with him, too. It couldn't have been a comfy arrangement in Oregon, but so it goes. The tent was about three quarters of a mile away from the wearman's cabin. The sheriff kept digging. Investigators had noticed a package from a local resident in Wehrman's house. A package with hand sewn curtains inside. They had come from a neighbor named Rachel Bates, and Bates hadn't mailed the curtains to the Wearman's. That would have been silly to leave the heart of town to go to the post office to mail something back to a neighbor. So instead, she put the curtains in that community mailbox mentioned earlier, basically bypassing the post office altogether. It would be akin to dropping a letter in your neighbor's box to save yourself the postage. Anyway, when Bates dropped the curtains into that box to get them to Daisy, she said she noticed a man was watching her. And that man was John Pender.
2: So Pender was kind of a creep. Daisy Wehrman had been avoiding him already before she died. So people knew that he was maybe fixated on her and that she did not like it one bit.
1: Sheriff Thompson wondered, did Pender go to the Wehrman cabin under the guise of delivering mail, make an unwanted advance, and then kill Daisy and Harold when she refused him? Asked about picking up the wearman's mail, Pender denied it. He said he sometimes did that for them, and he did pick up some neighbor's mail on that Monday. But he insisted there'd been nothing in the mail for the Wehrmans that day. But there must have been. The newspaper found near Daisy wasn't a local publication. It was from Iowa, mailed to her by her mother. It had been dated September 1st, so the earliest it could have possibly arrived in Oregon was September 2nd. Rachel Bates, the curtain maker, said she had been the one to pick up the Wehrman's mail that day, and there'd been no newspaper in the bundle. September 2nd was a Saturday. No mail came on Sunday. So that left September 4th the only day remaining that the newspaper could have been delivered while Daisy was still alive. Investigators asked Pender for an alibi. He said that the evening Daisy and Harold were likely killed, he was in his tent reading alone which is convenient. But another tent dweller nearby said there was no light coming from Pender's tent that evening. That wasn't all.
2: Often the first indication that something was wrong was that somebody didn't do their chores. Somebody didn't get milked cows. Now the cows are making noise. They know that he's always the father of the family is always up right at 6 a.m. to do all his chores. And he doesn't show up. Um, that's often the first sign that something is wrong. And that was part of why they suspect Pender as well, actually because he didn't do his evening chores the night they believed that Daisy Wehrman was murdered. And the fact that he didn't do those chores at the usual hour, 7 p.m. or whatever, and instead did them in the middle of the night was a big clue.
1: Pender didn't do his chores and he didn't wind his alarm clock as was his habit. Police got the clock detail from a neighbor from whom Pender had asked the time on Tuesday, explaining that he had forgotten to wind his clock the night before. Also, a 38 caliber gun, the same caliber used in the killing, was reported stolen from a cabin in the area. The owners of that cabin knew Pender, and Pender had a key to their place. Pender knew they kept a handgun in a trunk because he'd borrowed it before. Before the murders, that trunk had been pried open and the weapon stolen. Later, a hammer was found in Pender's tent that had bits of metal on the claw edge. Metal that seemed awfully similar to the lock on the molested trunk.
2: And also, Pender was found with scratches, defensive wounds, stuff under his fingernails, very guilty-looking. So Pender was arrested, but Pender's father was a cop.
1: This, of course, complicated matters.
2: Cops will protect other people. Cops will protect their family.
1: Pender's father, James F. Pender, was a detective in Ogden, Utah. There's never been much written about him. But Duke Smith, the retired deputy sheriff you heard from earlier, did some research for an article he wrote in 2013 published by the Columbia County Museum Association.
3: The material that I read was that his dad was a railroad detective.
1: The elder Pender swooped in to help his son. He hired private investigators and enlisted support from high-profile people both in Utah and in Oregon. It helped that John Arthur Pender, the son, was a veteran, according to Smith.
3: He had his main support came from, I think, people, uh, fellow troopers who were in the Spanish American War with him. And uh, the Veterans Association associated with that war uh, to provided information that bolstered his character, gave good commendations on his behavior, and so forth.
1: But the Columbia County Sheriff and prosecutor stood their ground. In October 1911, about a month after the slayings, They brought the evidence to a grand jury, which indicted Pender for first-degree murder.
3: I think most of the people out in Columbia County were convinced they had murdered the Werman's wife and uh, and son.
1: They might have been convinced, but there's no denying the case was entirely circumstantial, which made it tough for the jury. After a two-week trial, they couldn't reach a consensus and came back with no verdict. Tender stayed in jail awaiting his second trial. A lot happened on the national front while he waited. Theodore Roosevelt had served two terms as U.S. president between 1901 and 1909 and had supported his successor on the Republican ticket, William Taft. But after a term with Taft, Teddy wasn't thrilled with the guy after all. He considered Taft too conservative. So Teddy created his own progressive party. The
3: 1912 campaign was bitter. Roosevelt attacked Taft's conservatism and called for a new nationalism with sweeping progressive reforms. Whitman's compensation, minimum wage, and child labor laws. The Democratic nominee was Woodrow Wilson. With Republican loyalties divided, Wilson won the election of 1912. Roosevelt carried only six states, Taft only two.
1: Citizens at the time seemed torn on a lot of fronts, including capital punishment. Newspapers from the time show there was a debate raging in multiple states over whether the death penalty should be kept or abolished. That debate was especially contentious in Oregon, where Pender awaited his second trial for two years. When it finally happened, the results weren't what he had hoped. The jury deliberated for 18 hours and found Pender guilty and recommended no mercy. In October 1913, he was sentenced to death. This helped ignite the whole capital punishment debate even further because a lot of people thought he was innocent, especially his cop father. One newspaper reported, quote, the father spent much of his life savings seeking to disprove the evidence against John. End quote. Pender's mom was just as supportive. She penned a letter to the editor that ran in a little newspaper called the Ogden Standard in September 1914, pleading that her son's life be spared. She wrote, quote, "'A more unpardonable crime is about to be committed than that of which my son stands falsely accused and convicted. It is morally wrong to convict a man of a capital offense where a reasonable doubt of guilt exists.'" The entire region was split over whether Pender seemed guilty or not. He appealed the verdict, in vain, in 1914. But even people who thought he was guilty had trouble with the idea that he should be put to death on the evidence presented. The general feeling was that, geez, is there really enough here to send him to die? Shouldn't we be 100% sure when death is the punishment? Tender's family hired private investigators in hopes of finding alternate suspects. Remember, because law enforcement agencies were so understaffed and underfunded, private agencies played big roles in solving crimes. Broadcasting from an official conclave of the William J. Burns International Detective Agency, the world's greatest association
3: of private investigators. The greatest mystery stories of all, the true mystery stories, are the everyday work of these hawk-eyed super sleuths who are surrounding us right now. Their information sources cover the earth. India, Asia, Europe, Africa, South America, everywhere. Look out. There may be one behind you right now.
1: The trouble with private investigators is that they often tailor their solutions to a crime to the hopes of the person who hired them. In other words, of course, a P.I. hired by Pender's family would argue that John Arthur was innocent. And that's what the guy signing his checks wants him to argue. But to overturn a conviction, this P.I. needed to find a smoking gun. And he didn't. Eventually, though, the Penders did catch a break. But then
2: a few years into his conviction, a man confessed to the crimes. A man in a mental institution confessed to crimes.
1: A different man entirely. Another neighbor, who had never been considered at all by investigators, said he had killed Daisy and Harold in an attempt to frame Frank Weirman, Daisy's husband. His reason, he said, was that Frank had shot his father's dog. And the guy somehow figured killing Frank's family and framing him for their murders was a proportional response. The man's name was John Sierks. The surname should sound familiar, it was his mother, Elizabeth, who had found the bodies in the first place. John Searks was a 25 year old man with a long history of mental problems. He was one of two children to Mother Elizabeth and Father Gustav. Exactly a year after the Wehrman murders, Searks' parents had him committed to what was then called the Oregon State Insane Asylum in Salem. He'd supposedly had violent outbursts, threatened to kill his father, and talked about plans to poison his younger brother. So, when he confessed, people believed it. Especially because they remembered that odd tidbit about Elizabeth finding the bodies. She found them the day after the killings, but waited a full day before alerting police. Her explanation at the time was that she simply didn't know they were dead until she returned and saw that they hadn't moved the next day. But now that her own son had confessed, people thought, well, maybe she'd been trying to protect him. Maybe she'd hoped someone else would find the bodies so that her family wouldn't be tied up in the affair at all, thus keeping her son off cops' radars. But then, just days after he confessed, Sirx recanted. He said he only knew details of the crime because he had read about it in the newspaper and that a chaplain working in the hospital who fell into the Pender Didn't Do It camp had convinced him to confess. Sirx's father brought forth letters he had saved written by his son in the days after the slaying, and the letters John Searx wrote that he had read about the murders in the newspaper and was disturbed something like that could happen in their hometown. Whoever did the dirty trick, he wrote, ought to be hanged. Sirx's dad said the letters proved that his son wasn't even in town when the murders were committed. Rather, he believed that John, with his history of mental issues, somehow imagined that he had killed the two, and that his confession was really a manifestation of this delusion. But some people didn't buy that. The asylum superintendent, for example, said he believed Sirx's confession was, quote, true in every detail. I am convinced. Pender is innocent, end quote.
2: It's easy to dislike someone who is in a mental institution. Like we're talking about with feelings of safety and control, that's a much simpler explanation than some guy who has a wife and has a family and has a life decided that his greatest goal is to rape and murder some lady. I think that that makes people feel a lot more out of control.
1: The already divided region was even further confused it wasn't as though there were only two camps, either. The list of possible suspects definitely went beyond Sioux and Pender. Some were convinced that the killer was actually Frank Wehrman, Daisy's husband and Harold's father. Now, according to that theory, Frank had killed his wife and child before he left for work Sunday afternoon. Among the accusers were Frank's own cousin and that cousin's wife. They told police...
3: All these testimonies from his cousin's wife, and his cousin, then he acted nervous after the murder, and his cousin had been digging in a yard, and as his, his Frank Worman, the husband, said, don't do that, don't bother that, seemed real nervous.
1: This became especially compelling in January 1914, when a group of men said they were digging up a potato patch at the old Wehrman cabin and happened to unearth a 38 caliber handgun. Frank's cousin identified that patch as precisely the area Frank had warned him not to dig. But it could never be determined if that had been the same gun used to kill Daisy and Harold. The cousin also said,
3: Frank picked up a bunch of clothes and asked if he could burn them in the stove when it stuck around so he could see all the clothes would burn. That kind of thing raises a lot of suspicions, but nothing ever came of it.
1: No doubt Frank would be looked at closer today, but even in hindsight, we can find some issues with the theory he was the killer, just based on the timeline. First, Rachel Bates had seen Daisy on Saturday night. Second, there was the matter of the mail that apparently came Monday. Third, there was the Monday baked bread. Still, once there's a murder, every hiccup in a relationship will be magnified. Frank apparently was a jealous man, or at least that's what Frank's cousin told police. The cousin's wife agreed and added that Daisy was an abusive mother, routinely beating Harold. The woman said that once, Daisy whooped Harold senseless with a piece of firewood. These two were really the only character witnesses against Frank, though. And some of their statements sound pretty contrived. And for example, they said that after the coroner's inquest, Frank came to stay with them and seemed fidgety. He would look out the windows as though worried someone was after him. Well, his wife and child had been viciously murdered and he didn't know why. So it is possible he could have thought somebody was determined to wipe out his whole family, which could include him. If ever there were an understandable time to be paranoid, this might be that time. For the most part...
3: Everybody was convinced that Frank Werman had nothing to do with it.
1: Still, Pender's supporters pointed to all these theories as they lobbied hard for his release, as did his lawyers. But the Oregon Supreme Court refused to hear the case, thus affirming the verdict and the death sentence public support quietly grew.
2: It's kind of a grassroots movement around Pender. There was a book published in a few years after that confession.
1: The book was called Why Some Men Kill. It was written in 1919 by George A. Thatcher, who was president of the Oregon Prisoners Aid Society. Thatcher wrote he had investigated the Wehrman case for years and spelled out in great detail why he believed that John Searx was the killer in the case, not John Arthur Pender. The book was wildly popular with some high-profile people.
3: All this caught the attention of the three governors of Oregon.
1: Governor Oswald West, who started following the case, was opposed to the death penalty in principle, and he used Pender's case to help propel a constitutional amendment outlawing capital punishment in Oregon. In November 1914, voters approved the amendment. Pender's sentence was commuted his life spared. Now, this nixing of the death penalty was short-lived. Oregon has kind of ping-ponged back and forth a few times over the decades. Right now, there's been a moratorium on capital punishment since 2011 because the governor at that time said the system was compromised, unfair, and in need of an overhaul. But the very first time Oregon outlawed it, Pender's case was a big part of the reason why. Pender's father lived to see his son's sentence commuted And then he died the next year. People loyal to James Pender kept fighting for his son's release.
2: There was a lot of pressure to release Pender, uh, especially, I think, after his father died. People knew how deeply his father wanted his son out of prison and kind of felt sympathetic towards him.
1: And I think that engendered some sympathy. Commutation was not enough. I mean, if you think a guy is innocent altogether, a sentence of life in prison isn't your end goal. They asked one governor for a pardon, and then another. Finally, in September 1920, Governor Ben Olcott hand-delivered an unconditional pardon to Pender in prison. Olcott said he didn't think Pender got a fair trial. Tears filled Pender's eyes as he promised Olcott would never regret what he had done. The next day, his tearful mother embraced him and brought him to her home. The Oregon Daily Journal described Pender reuniting with his wife. Quote, In the pouring rain and howling wind of one o'clock Sunday morning, John Arthur Pender, pardoned from the state prison and declared innocent of the crime of murder by Governor Alcott, met his wife under the trees of the parking in the block between 21st and 22nd streets on Hoyt. The tall form of a woman wrapped in a tan raincoat ran out of the darkness straight into Art's arms. Pender, equally tall and gaunt from the prison confinement and worry, dropped the ancient-looking leather suitcase he was carrying and gathered to his breast the woman who had never lost faith nor hope and who had worked and waited for that hour of vindication. End quote. It all sounds so lovely, but the thing is, Even though Pender is still listed on the National Registry of Exonerations, many believe that he was the murderer after all, because he was caught trying to do it again. In October 1927, a 15-year-old girl placed an ad looking for work as a nursemaid. A man called her up to set up an interview, and the girl arrived with a chaperone. The caller never showed, so the girl went home. Then the guy called again and again. Three times, the teen went to meet this man, and each time she brought a chaperone because she wasn't an idiot. Neither was the girl's father, who reported the behavior to the police. The police decided to set a trap. When the same guy called for a fourth meeting, police instructed the girl to accept the meeting and go alone.
3: Set up a surveillance.
1: The idea was that the cops would tail her to see what happened. When the man and girl met up, he asked her to come to his house, which he said was within walking distance.
3: And Binger tried to talk her into going down a a lonely road past a forested area and threw her to the ground and tried to strangle her.
1: Three officers followed, but not closely enough. The man took the girl into a brushy area. Tore off some of her clothes and started choking her.
3: He told her that if she screamed and made a loud noise, he would kill her.
1: As police finally arrived, one newspaper report describes that he had a hammer raised over his head, poised to smash in the girl's skull. The man had answered the ad as Frank Miller, but once in custody, some veteran officers recognized him, so he copped to his real identity John Arthur Pender. For seven years after he had been pardoned, Pender seemed to have led a quiet life. But with his arrest and the attempted murder of a teenage girl, police began to believe he had actually been quite busy after his release from prison. They began looking at all unsolved murder cases to see if he might have been connected, and they became convinced that he was responsible for at least one on April 22, 1924, a 15-year-old girl named Martha Greatkey had been brutally slain while she was home alone. Her body was discovered by her sister in the family's kitchen. The teen had been bashed over the head, choked, gagged, and stabbed to death. A Wire story said she was also mistreated before her death an understated euphemism for rape. While a neighbor had seen a stranger lurking behind the house about an hour before the murder, the only description published was that the man was tall and roughly dressed. The case so baffled police that a news brief days later quoted a supposed psychic who had a vision that the murderer was living on North 9th Street. Police went to the house in question, but left empty-handed. For weeks, every transient passing through town was questioned in the case, to no avail. Then, the case went cold, until Pender's arrest. He'd been in the area when the murder happened, and, well, it seemed now that maybe he was capable. A front-page story about Pender in the Ogden Standard Examiner on October 29, 1927, announced that Martha's case would be immediately reopened. It added, quote, all other unsolved cases of assault upon women occurring since September 11th, 1920, when then-Governor Alcott gave Pender unconditional pardon and released him from the penitentiary, will be similarly probed, end quote.
3: That he could do that proves that he was capable of killing the women.
1: Pender's mother didn't live to see him arrested a second time. She died in June 1923, At some point, his wife Fonda accused him of abusing her and slicing her arms with a butcher knife. She once tried to get him committed as insane, but the effort failed and the two stayed married until his death. After Pender's arrest, headlines nationwide announced the charges against the once pardoned man who was dubbed a beast man and forevermore presented as likely guilty in the Wehrman case after all. This became politically sensitive, what with the separate governors having both helped commute the man's death sentence and then pardon him of the crime altogether. In a typical game of blame everyone else, a Wire story on October 29th, 1927 began, the state parole board and not Governor Olcott was responsible for the pardon of John Arthur Pender in 1920, according to Donnie Upjohn, secretary to Governor Olcott and member of the parole board at the time of Pender's release from the state prison. Never mind that Olcott presented the pardon to Pender in person. That's a lot of peas. Olcott eventually took the blame, though, saying to reporters, What has recently happened is evidence that I was mistaken in my judgment. I regret the matter greatly and feel now that hanging would have been too good for him. Pender tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but the judge said, nah. It seemed that being cautious enough to refrain from trying to kill the girl when she had a chaperone nearby was proof enough that Pender knew exactly what he was doing. Jurors took just 10 minutes to convict him. He was sentenced to life in prison in December 1927, Though as often happens, it doesn't appear he served his full sentence. I can't say when he was released because no newspaper noted it. In fact, to highlight just how forgotten this once huge case was, Pender's obituary in 1950 at age 82 made no mention of either of his convictions. This was a man whose case landed on front pages nationwide who drew the attention not just of the crime-fascinated country, but of three separate Oregon governors. His case even affected state law. And yet, when he died, his four-sentence obituary noted only that he'd once lived in Portland and was survived by his wife. To research this story, which had less material available than most cases covered here, I interviewed author Rachel McCarthy James of The Man from the Train and Duke Smith, who wrote an article for the Columbia County Museum Association, upon which I also relied. I also read contemporary news coverage of the Wehrman murder, the Pender trials, the subsequent pardon, and the Grotke murder. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to ObsessedNetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.